With 15 Oregon counties moving back to extreme risk of COVID spread, the state will likely see jobless claims rise as restrictions on indoor activities return. Those newly out-of-work Oregonians will go back to the state's clunky unemployment system that remains one of the slowest in the country. I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with the Oregonian. Up next, business reporter Mike Rogaway talks about the still ongoing woes at the state's employment department. A year into the economic crisis, some workers are still stuck dealing with a system that has fundamental flaws that can't be fixed anytime soon. We hit on that and much more. Then, in the second half of the show, state politics reporter Hillary Baru discusses Oregon landing a sixth congressional seat, the first expansion in 40 years. But first, here's Mike. Mike Rogaway, thanks so much for taking time to talk today. Very glad to be here, Andrew. So, Mike, we talked several times in 2020 about Oregon's employment department and its extensive issues. How do things stand today? So things have improved in some ways considerably. You know, most claims are processed quickly and smoothly. Um, But there's two big caveats. Number one, we're still much slower than the nation as a whole. Our colleague Dave Kanzler crunched some federal data, and the feds have a a three-week standard for timely payments. Mm -hmm. And nationally, uh, states make those payments with about two-thirds of the time within three weeks when you file for unemployment claims. Oregon, it's a little less than half. We've definitely improved. You know, we were we were down around thirty percent uh, last summer, but we've definitely picked up the pace. But there's another complication when something goes wrong with your benefits, and it can be a fairly routine thing that goes wrong. It's just about impossible to reach the employment department. They're just totally overwhelmed um, by the volume of claims, and they're stuck, as we've discussed before, with this rigid computer system from the 1990s. Oregon got federal money to upgrade it Mm -hmm. in 2009, $86 million, but that never happened. There were, you know, the Oregonian had our our former colleagues, Rich Reed and and Molly Young, had a a series of stories um, in the 2010s about just all the huge leadership problems they had there. So Oregon never spent the money, never upgraded its computer systems, and they just can't adapt uh, when changes need to be made. Almost everything has that's anything but totally routine has to be done manually. And when you have thousands of people filing claims at a time, yeah. or in the past year, 600,000 people filing claims at some point, it just doesn't scale. They tripled, uh, quadrupled their workforce at the employment department during the pandemic. But they still can't call everybody promptly <laughs> to get these things worked out. And this is a particularly tricky time right now because people have been unemployed for a year, and yeah. they're falling off of the original programs that they were on. In most cases, they can still get benefits. There's still opportunities for them, but they have to shift to another program and figure out which program you go to and how is complicated. And sometimes... You can't just pick up the phone and ask, right? No, you you cannot do that. Uh, this, This is one of the major frustrations people have. The computers are so rigid that the mailings they send out still say to call. You know, if there's some interruption with your program, you'll get with your benefits, you'll get a letter in the mail and it says, call this number to work it out. 
Well, the, there's no way to get through with the number. You know, it's busy all the time. If you do get through, you'll be on hold for hours, and they'll probably hang up on you anyway, just because there's so many calls. Uh, and they haven't been able to reprogram the computers, these 1990s computers, to stop saying that. So they've taken to inserting letter notes in there. Ignore the phone number advice. Here's an online form that you go to this online form. Even if you go to the online form, you're looking at three weeks before you hear back from somebody. Incredible. Maybe longer. Maybe longer. Uh, and it's just the rigidity of the program. Uh, Governor Brown appointed, she fired the the last director, Kay Erickson, last May, and installed uh, this technocrat, David Gerstenfeld, who has been just methodical in his approach. He tackles one thing after another. He said, we, here's an issue. We got to take care of it. And he'll say, this is the timeline. We're going to take care of it. Work through it step by step by step. And he addresses it. And so one by one, the most serious problems, you know, the delay in payments of PUA, this is a new benefit program for self-employed workers that took months to roll out. He tackled it, it got rolled out, uh, delay in the, the waiting week payments for the first week people are out of, out of money that was supposed to be paid in March, 2020. It didn't get paid till November, 2020 in Oregon. We were the last state to pay it by months, months behind everyone else. But, you know, he tackled it and they got paid. Uh, and then this adjudication, many claims need to be essentially ruled about whether or not somebody's eligible. You know, it, there's sort of a sometimes sort mm -hmm. of a gray area. It's not clear. There were thousands of people stuck in that backlog last fall and weren't getting paid. He steadily whittled that down. But what Gerstenfeld can't do is change the fundamental system that's based on this antiquated technology. And so the governor talked to us last week and the article that we ran this past Wednesday, you know, said, I'm sorry, I hear you. You know, this is the system we've got that we're working through it. And she holds up, you know, the, legitimately the progress they have made, but they haven't, <laughs> they, they haven't fixed the computers and she's, that's not going to happen until 2025. Major reforms won't take place, the governor says, until she's got an audit that the Secretary of State's office is just starting now. So we're looking at months before that. And she says she won't decide on the long-term leadership of the department until the pandemic's over. All those are arguably reasonable decisions uh, under the circumstances because it's hard to make sweeping changes right now. But they don't do anything for the thousands of people who are stuck you know, and, and not getting benefits. And, and for me, I, I can tell when there's an issue Last spring, a year ago, my phone rang constantly. I had to take my phone number off of my articles because people couldn't get through the employment department. So they were calling me, right? Uh, say, help me. What can I do? Well, I'm getting those calls and emails again, even though my number's usually not on the article anymore. That people find it, and and it's clearly a pain point for folks. And I, I hear from people every day about this. Yeah, you interviewed a few Oregonians who are still tied up in in this um, and frustrated with the system. Could you talk about um, you know one of those folks you interviewed and what their situation is? Yeah, um, we'll we'll start with the person who who let off the article, Megan Gadini. She's thirty eight. She lives in South Tabor. She had a marketing job before the pandemic, and you know the company went away. You know, right before the pandemic hit. So she's. She's lining up to get her jobless benefits, and then the pandemic hits, and she just gets thrown into this mess. And her husband, who worked in the film industry, he got laid off too. So they spent five months, like many Oregonians, trying to get it straightened out. It got straightened out until December, and it stopped coming. Mm -hmm. And so uh, she hasn't been getting her benefits. 
Uh, and so she, you know, working really hard to find some way in to some way to capture their attention. She's got a three-year-old at home. She's got another baby due next month. Uh, you know, they're dipping into their savings. It's, it's a bad situation. I, I heard from her yesterday after the article ran, uh, coincidentally, or maybe not, uh, she got a, she got a call from the employment department, but she wasn't right by her phone at the moment. So she ran to it and just missed it by moments. And who knows when she'll talk to them again. Wow. That is just, uh, that's one glimpse of, you know, an experience that countless Oregonians are are still dealing with. You mentioned earlier, Mike, that you spoke with the governor and I, I don't want to let that slide because <laughs> I mean, that that's a rarity. She has not spoken about this uh, in an interview. Right? No, she's Since... almost never spoken about it during this whole pandemic. She has had some tweets on it and she did fire the last director. But other than that, she hasn't said much publicly about it. What is there to say? <laughs> this is a thing that she can't can't address, but she did have some some things to say, and and you know I, I think the first thing, as as the director David Gerstenfeld has said, and and other and others in the department, they always make a point of saying we understand and we recognize it's an issue. I think that the most concrete things that came out of that was she says she thinks they will sign a contract with a new vendor to upgrade the unemployment benefit system. So sign that contract next month. So that will start the process of finally making that upgrade, 130 million bucks or so uh, mm -hmm. to be done in 2025. She said she'll make a decision on the department's leadership sometime after the pandemic. I took that to mean, you know, I asked her, when's the pandemic going to be over? She said, yeah, right. <laughs> like, I know. <laughs> but I, I took her to mean, you know, late summer or fall. And she's not going to announce other major reforms until the Secretary of State's audit is is done. And when will that be? Do we have any sense of twenty twenty two? I I think we might have something late this year. Uh, the Secretary of State's office told me they're just starting the process now, but they said it's it's their very top priority, and so they want to move through it quickly. I my I'm you know having covered this for a year, I have a degree of skepticism because there were two prior audits that clearly laid out the issues to the department in <laughs> exquisite detail. And then there was a, a third analysis by legislative staffers of last summer that laid out some of the, the other issues. I'm, I'm not sure what we're going to learn that we didn't know coming into the pandemic. But it, it might be helpful to look at this within the context of the pandemic. And what the governor said when I was talking to her is, you know, we, we have to be prepared for major disruptions, not minor recessions. We have to be prepared for great recessions. We have to be prepared for wildfires. We have to be prepared for earthquakes. And we have to have systems that can scale up quickly. And I, I think we can sort of see that's that's her objective. She wants something flexible, adaptable, something that can scale, something that isn't rigid. All, all that makes sense. It's just little consolation to the people who aren't getting their benefits right now and are scraping by during one of the toughest economic stretches in Oregon history. Yeah. And meanwhile, you know, jobless claims nationally, I think, hit their lowest level since the since the real crisis began is that how it is at home as well or is that just the national no uh, we have been much slower on this we we actually did really well last summer when we had that sort of partial reopening you know we had indoor dining again people were traveling for the summer and covid levels were really low we actually were back to pre-covid levels in terms of new jobless claims it didn't look terrible then but it's it's 
not that way now. We're we're probably almost double where we were last summer in terms of new jobless claims and well over double in the number of new claims we get each week than we were before the pandemic. And as we're speaking, Andrew, um, we're about to shut down our indoor dining again. Uh, and there'll be a, a bunch of new claims associated with that or restarted claims. And however long that lasts, most states are not having a COVID resurgence right now. And they are their economies are growing really rapidly. It's important to say overall, Oregon's economy is actually fairly strong right now. It's just certain sectors like hospitality, like hotels, restaurants and bars uh, and gyms that are just hating it. And it's just just awful. And unfortunately, the people working in those sectors tend to be lower wage workers. So they're the ones having the hardest time. Do we have a sense, Mike, that, um, you know, restarting claims, has that been an issue? Or are, are these folks, uh, you know, in these 15 counties who are going to be filing claims, are they going to have issues restarting? They will have issues restarting because it, this is the way the employment department puts it. I mean, most of the time, it should be fairly straightforward. But when you have thousands and thousands and thousands of people restarting, even if only 1% of them have an issue, that's a lot. That's a large number of people. And it's more than the department can handle promptly, especially when they're already dealing with you know, prior backlogs. So it will be another headache for people. I, you know, I'm not, I don't want to discourage people from filing. You should file. And if you're unemployed, you should file every week. That's the advice. They, even if you aren't getting paid, file every week. Because then when they do get it straightened out, the money can come in a big rush. But Yes, it it for some people, and hopefully it will be a small minor. It will be a minority of people, although it will still be a large number in aggregate. It won't be that painful. Now we have such a legacy here in Oregon of these archaic computer systems and long term technological challenges, and kind of you know putting it off forever and ever. <laughs> Do we have any confidence? Do you have any confidence that? We're going to meet this next, you know, deadline to to fix this issue before the inevitable next crisis hits. You know, I uh, I talked to a, a Reed political science professor about this when we last wrote about Oregon's relative poor performance in October, and he said it, it's it's just not a coincidence that whether it's PERS or Cover Oregon or the Employment Department, Real ID, Real ID, that Oregon's always sort of last in that and. And his attribution for that, he, he said, one thing you've got to look at is one party rule. And he said that, you know, it's not that Democrats are necessarily worse at administering government than Republicans. You can look at plenty of Republican states that are having that have their own issues. They're just a different kind of issue. And I, I think the issue we might have is that people are competing only on ideology in political races in Oregon because it is so one party and people aren't competing, you know, on competence. Because people vote with the person they agree with ideologically. And he thinks that you know a more competitive system uh, or a, a state that, that's a little more balanced ideologically, it might, you know, priority might become something more like, how good are you at, at administering these? That said, I think the problems are pretty well understood at this point. The complication we're going to have as we install a new benefit system is the feds are planning their own system. Senator Wyden has been pushing that and Joe Biden included it in his big infrastructure wish list. Yeah, the American Jobs Plan. Right. That we would have some kind of national unemployment benefit system. And so every state won't have 
their own cobbled together thing that become antiquated. Uh, I think we saw with the Affordable Care Act that that kind of worked out. States like Oregon tried to go their own way and it didn't work. The federal system didn't work either, but it only didn't work for like three weeks and then the feds fixed it and now it works pretty well. And so I, I think there is some argument in favor of a, a national system. It's just not clear whether the system Oregon's building will be redundant or complementary or how they'll work together. Both the State Employment Department and Senator Wyden, who are pushing this, say Oregon should not wait. It should go ahead with its plan. And then, you know, the, the federal program will be designed with that in mind. And in some way, they will integrate. We'll just have to see how that goes. Well, that level of uh, uncertainty doesn't make your <laughs> your the the hair on the, on the back of your neck stand up. Then I guess nothing <laughs> will. But I guess we'll see. Uh, thanks for chronicling this as always and uh, taking time to talk about it. Yeah, it's good talking to you, Andrew. Let's take a break, then come back and hear from Hillary Baroud. Hillary Baroud, thanks so much for taking time to talk today. Yeah, sure. So we have five congressional seats in Oregon, and we learned this week that we're about to get a sixth. Is this going to be a red or a blue district? What do we know? Well, we don't know yet since the committees that are working on that in the state legislature just got the data along with everyone else or the information, at least that we were going to get a seat. Um, And they have been holding some hearings, but the hearings so far have been not on on any maps or anything that people could really get an idea of where they're going to go. So now they'll take this information and start coming up with some plans. And I'm sure there are people behind the scenes that it's been expected that Oregon would get this sixth congressional seat. So behind the scenes, Mm -hmm. there are definitely people who have been plotting out various options. So like really nuts and bolts wise, who draws this? I mean, who gets to decide uh, what what the district looks like? Well, um, there are going to be consultants, political consultants that would be working on it probably behind the scenes. And I think it's safe to assume that lawmakers will get some information from that on what they think might be good ideas here. But technically speaking and formally, There are legislative redistricting committees in the legislature. They're made up of Republicans and Democrats, of course, as the legislature is overall controlled by Democrats. Um, But there's one in the Senate, one in the House. They're sometimes meeting together and supposed to work more together as we get further along in this. And then they will come up with they're supposed to come up with maps that would get full votes in each chamber and they're doing the same for their own districts, the legislative districts. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the legislative process is more tightly outlined because it's in the state constitution and they have a deadline. They have deadlines to do that. The congressional process is more wide open and state law basically just doesn't even give them a deadline, except that if they haven't finished a map by August 1st, then anyone who is a, a voter in the state basically could file a, could go ask, um, I believe it's the Supreme Court to order them to have a judicial panel come up with a map if the legislature fails to do so. 
Now, this is all happening during a pandemic when there's a legislative session that uh, you've been covering for months now. But this is kind of this is a big deal, obviously. But uh, can you talk a little bit about a, um, you know, the the lawmakers in Salem and, and Speaker Kotek in particular kind of hashed out a deal, right? So, yeah, of course, uh, Kotex, the House Speaker, the deal just pertains to the House Redistricting Committee, and Republicans had wanted a little bit more say at the committee. So it added uh, the Republican leader Drazen to the committee and then elevated another Republican member of the committee so that she's the vice chair on that committee, I believe. Um, and so this is this was widely seen as a, you know, this is a, a good news for Republicans, right? I think it is good news for Republicans. It should give them a little bit more information maybe about what's going on with those maps. But some of the calculus around the political calculus on this, I think it's unchanged because there's a big reason for Republicans to want to complete any of these maps um, in the legislature and to get that work done working with Democrats, because on the legislative side of things, the maps that would really have a big impact on who controls the legislature and to what degree, because the extent of your majority in in a state legislature is really important as well, since we know in Oregon, there could be walkouts, Mm -hmm. which prevent even a few. (laughs) Yeah, we've had a few. And in that case, you know, Democrats would, would need to get a bigger majority in the legislature to prevent Republicans from stalling things by walking out. So it's not just having a majority, it's the size of it. So the legislative districts are really important for that. And Republicans have a stake in getting those maps drawn by the legislature because otherwise it would shift to the Secretary of State, who is a Democrat, and and would get a crack at drawing those maps herself. So regardless of how much power they have on the committee, Republicans have a really good reason to want the legislature to be successful in getting this done on time. And the same thing with the congressional districts, even though it wouldn't transfer over to the secretary of state directly to do that, say they don't get the congressional districts drawn by August 1st, then there's a a pretty good chance it would get taken to the courts. Now, there is a good chance that any of these maps are going to go to the courts anyway, because there are a lot of interests, whether it's businesses or public employee unions who tend to support um, Democrats more. Business interests would probably be more interested in getting um, stronger Republican districts. They are quite likely to take any of the maps that get drawn legislative or congressional to the courts. Now, we've by this point, I'm sure people have seen kind of potential maps of what the district might look like. And, you know, obviously, Oregon has one of the largest uh, geographic uh, congressional districts, uh, the district uh, that encompasses Southern Oregon and Eastern Oregon and Northeast Oregon uh, that Cliff Bentz represents. I mean, is is it likely that some sort of uh, uh, the sixth district is going to cleave portions of that away? Because that extends, you know, all the way down the gorge to uh, Hood River. Yeah, it it seems likely just looking at the numbers of registered voters, which is different than um, that's not the only thing that they would be looking at in making that decision or or evaluating proposals on how to redo the congressional districts. But Cliff Bence's district right now even has more registered voters than any other of our current five districts. So he has 
or had as of the end of March, uh, 605,588 registered voters in his district. And the next largest district, it looks like, is the third district, Earl Blumenauer's district in the Portland area at 597, basically almost almost um, 598,000. So you're talking about a few thousand difference in terms of voters, but Benz's district is already the largest, not just geographically. And, you know, obviously, um, adding a seat is, is a sign that Oregon is growing, right? And um, that's the whole point of uh, the, the census and the reapportionment. Yeah, and growing faster than other states. Yeah. And um, what parts of the state are growing? I mean, anecdotally, obviously, we live in the Portland area, and we've seen a lot of people come here. I know that Bend was growing really quickly over the previous decade and the start of the last decade when I lived there. Um, I think it's safe to say that it's continued to do so, but that that would be over in his district. So then um, I'm not sure what that means in terms of moving things around. But there's also been some shifts within districts too. I mean, I haven't looked at the breakdown of voters, but I know when we were looking at state legislative races last fall that there have been some shifts, and this is an area that you're kind of familiar with, I think, in southern Oregon and going towards the coast in some of the um, legislative districts that are sort of like south and then towards the coast. They have increasingly got more Republicans. They've gotten a little redder down Mm -hmm. there. So that could be interesting for, um, say, the fourth district with DeFazio. Yeah, and uh, you know, we we talked about Bend previously on this podcast and how it's, you know, kind of a it's a purple area for the legislative purposes and there've been some changes there. So I guess it'll be interesting to see how or if it factors into uh the new congressional district. Yeah, it will be. And this is the first time I'm not sure how this would factor into the process for congressional districts, but this is the first time that we have these large numbers of non-affiliated voters. So when I was looking at how the voter registration breakdowns are in each of the congressional districts that we have right now, you see about a third of the registered voters in each of our five districts right now are non-affiliated. And that's because of the huge well in in the registered voters in Oregon since we've had automatic voter registration going back now five or six years. Yeah. And they don't turn out as much, but you know, they count for how you get represented in terms of the districts. So we're at an interesting time now, Hillary and state politics where we have uh, you know, we're gonna have a gubernatorial race and we're gonna have a new congressional representative. I know it's hard to handicap who candidates might be for a congressional district when we don't have a map, but uh, there's going to be uh, some some names, I'm sure, that uh, Oregonians are familiar with and those that they'll be learning more about as, as this all shakes out. Yeah, it sounds like the new congressional seat and or just seats that could be in play due to lines moving around overall are really a top interest for any politician that, that's serious about running for, for higher office here in Oregon. Um, 
if you're interested in running for governor, chances are you might be even more interested in running for Congress. So the only thing that I have a question about with that is most of the people that I hear are interested in it are from the Portland, uh, Portland area, Portland metro area. And so obviously we can't, uh, well, I shouldn't say obviously because who knows what's going to happen, but it seems like it'd be difficult to um, wedge in another district just to add a person up here. Um, how many districts can, can touch the Portland metro area? I guess that'll be interesting to see how that, that works out. So, yeah, we've heard um, Deborah Kafori as a name that some people, some political insiders throw out as interested in running for governor. Um, Tina Kotek, but then some people speculate maybe she'd be more interested in running for Congress. She's the House Speaker, as we mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Tobias Reed and the Attorney General, the Treasurer, and then Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum. They're both uh, recently reelected and then gave some kind of non-denial denials or um, statements that really left it open that they could run for governor or be interested or exploring that. Yeah, all of those people, I suppose, could potentially be interested in the congressional seat too. Well, there's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of moving pieces as this all kind of shakes out, and uh, I know a lot of it's speculation at the time. But uh, thanks for taking time to kind of just think it out and talk about it. Sure. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. I shared a link to Mike's story about the employment department's ongoing issues in the episode notes. If you like this show, leave us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts or tell a friend. The best way to support our journalism is with a subscription to Oregon Live. You can do that at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Until next time.